Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So now that you all have your Galatians journal and pen and are ready to jump into the word, we're going to have the Andrews come up to read this morning's passage. Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even we, or, or but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You know, imagine for a moment that you're living in South Africa, and it's the early 1990s, and the government sanctioned and enforced apartness, or as many of us have known it by its Afrikaans name, the apartheid, has recently been, uh, been through its downfall, it's seen its downfall, with the government formally beginning to renounce its demands and shifting its stance on racial integration. And let's say you're a person entering that culture and scene and that important moment in history, and you're entering it because you've been commissioned, maybe even by the United Nations, but by some outside source commissioned and funded by them to come up with these architectural plans that you've arrived with in hand for a series of massive community centers and sports complexes that someone else is wanting to fund. The large, large dining halls inside these community centers are going to be the central feature and purpose of these new projects. In fact, regardless of how impractical it seems, the architect's plans show a massive, singular, long table that runs the full length of the, of the whole dining hall as a centerpiece and as a statement that now all of those who live in South Africa are welcomed around the same table, regardless of skin color or racial background. The table was a very clear statement. And, and although you were present to see the foundation being laid for the building, and although you had handed over the plans for the remainder of it to be completed, you had to leave that community to go to another one, to start another work, another project, very similar to this one. And it wouldn't be long that you'd been gone that you get word that things have changed already that the plans that you had left for the people in that community were something that they departed from, where they had their own ideas of what things should look like. In fact, you were stunned to finally see it with your own eyes when someone showed you a progress report in the form of a photo. It had only been just a handful of months since you had last left this rural community, and now you can see that the building's steel framing has gone up all around it. In fact, even the, the first of its large concrete slab tilt-up walls was put in place, but you noticed it immediately. The wall was built right in the center of that dining hall. 
The wall was placed right where that centerpiece, a massive table that communicated to the whole of the community that everyone was now welcomed with equal identity and access to the same table that everyone could belong. Now no table is there. Instead, a wall, a massive wall has been placed right there. There would now be two separate entrances. There'd now be two separate dining rooms. There'd now, again, be two separate tables for people to find themselves at. For you, you'd probably be dismayed and, and, and a bit disheartened. You'd begin to question, well, how did it happen? Especially, how did it happen so quickly that, that they gave up on these plans? And, and then the reports came in that after you had left the job site, some older people from the community had come in and began to question the workers about the site plans that you had left for them. They begin to say, well, those big plans and those big ideas, they represent some big, ill-informed ideas that we're just not quite ready for. What does this outsider really think, or what does it matter what he thinks? Who is he anyways? They publicly began to question. We know what our people need. We know what we need. And so we know how things will best function for our people and country as we move forward. We know the right and good way for us to live. And with that, the workers, the builders, totally shifted the plans that you had left for them, the beautiful work of art and statement expressing that everything had changed and that we're now a new united people was completely discarded and now was reduced to just another expression of institutional segregation and oppression. I mean, can you imagine the kind of disappointment that you'd feel the moment was more than just giving up on building plans. The, the moment, the decision was actually to go back to a broken system that only would perpetuate more and more brokenness generation by generation. This was a move away from freedom and back under soul-crushing law that just perpetuated brokenness. This is the kind of situation that Paul the Apostle is facing. These are the kinds of emotions that he's feeling when he picks up his pen to write the church at Galatia, or I should say the churches in southern Turkey, a series of churches that he had planted, departed from, and they've already so soon left the blueprint and model. In fact, it's the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright who said it very well. He said, Paul was building with people, not bricks and mortar, laying the foundation of the good news. Jesus' death and resurrection mean that God is now building a new family, a single family, a family with no divisions, no separate races, no Jews at this table and Gentiles, the non-Jews at another. Jesus would be the one to make the construction of this new house and family possible. He alone, he's funding it from the outside, you could say, paying for it with his own life. But then Paul would show up as the pioneer of that work, laying the foundation in a series of churches that he would plant there in Asia Minor, uh, modern southern Turkey, in the region of Galatia, so that the gospel's transforming power could be experienced by those that Jesus wanted to rescue but were far from him. But now Paul's getting word after departing that the work is being undermined and is under threat of being completely and totally undone as a group of false teachers have shown up on the scene known as the Judaizers. They've infiltrated the church throughout the region of Galatia saying that, that yes, you need the grace of God as, as Paul has told you, we find in Jesus but you also need to do something else. You and, you also, you, you need to add to that 
the upholding of Jewish laws and customs of, of holy days and circumcision if you really want to please God. Yes, grace, yes, yes, we get that, but also you need to still follow the Jewish law and customs and even a Jewish diet and circumcision. That's what's happening there in Galatia that was so very troubling for Paul. And by way of introduction, I want to tell you that the letter that Paul then will write because of that unsettling reality that he's facing and his deep concern for these people, the letter that he writes them is unique amongst all that Paul will write that we have recorded for us in Scripture, and it's incredibly powerful. Let me tell you first why it's unique. It's unique first and foremost because it's the earliest of all of Paul's letters that we still have for us today. Most scholars agree that this was the earliest letter that Paul would have written any church, making it our earliest look into the church's existence after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and leaving it to function as a unique glimpse into the capital C church's first, their earliest, battles and problems that they faced, the challenges that the bride of Christ would endure right from the get-go. But it's also unique in this way. It's unique in Paul's forceful and urgent approach. You see, most of Paul's letters, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that they begin with really positive language. When he's referencing his own credentials, introducing himself, writing a bit different than maybe you would write a letter today, he, he would write his letter first identifying himself so people knew who it was from, but then he would make sure that he identifies who his audience is meant to be, and then he'd introduce the subject matter of his writings. But here he uses different kinds of language. He doesn't lean into that positive rhythm of introducing himself under positive terms and then speaking to them, making sure that they know who he's speaking to, again, using positive language. He does it with the book of Romans, where he says, Paul, a bondservant and apostle. And then in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I thank my God for you, for you and your faith that resounds, that's, that's known. It's in Ephesians where he writes of himself, he says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. And then in verse 15, he says, I heard of your faith and love, and I have not stopped thanking God for it still. It's him as he wrote the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, where he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus. I thank my God concerning you. Now, you might remember the, the first letter he wrote to the church of Corinth, where he just said, he started his address to them, I thank my God concerning you. The rest of the book, the rest of the letter, is his deep concerns for them. You remember that this church had more issues and drama and baggage than any other people who would receive a letter from Paul. They'd get together for their Sunday gathering and share a meal and gather around the Lord's table to partake of communion, and people are getting drunk at that table. It's that the people who are coming early to that feast are eating up everything that's on the table so that the blue-collar workers who aren't done until the sun went down, they, they're still out working. All of the food is gone so that when they arrive, it creates this, this divide between the two where it's those of us who have enough money, we're, we're healthy and well and full and fed, and those, the rest of you, well, you can go figure it out for yourself. It's, it's a church that boasted of the fact that they had a man in their gathering who was getting in bed with his mother-in-law. There was all sorts of brokenness and chaos in their meetings, and yet he still begins with positive language that I thank God always concerning you. I hope you're tracking with me. This is something he does again and again with this exception, the letter to the Galatians. It's different. Here's how Paul begins to address them. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, and then his first word he uses is negative. 
not, do you catch this? Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me, we are writing to you, to the churches of the region of Galatia. Rather than starting with positive language, he kicks this off by making his tone and concern very clear. It's clear to the reader and every commentator agrees that he's very worked up in this moment about what's happening in these churches, that these churches have abandoned the gospel that Paul brought after Paul's qualifications and authority to preach that gospel were undermined by these false teachers. False teachers were like the people in our opening illustration who came along changing the blueprint and erecting a foreign construct, dragging people backwards into and under another broken system. And then think of how he first addresses the people. Rather than I thank God always for you, what does he say? It's found in verse 6. He says, I marvel. Other translations say, I'm amazed, astonished, shocked. I'm surprised that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Rather than beginning with positive language, he kicks it off by making his tone and heart very clear. Oh, don't you hear his urgency here? I marvel that you have departed so soon. Or listen to chapter 3, verse 1, where you hear that passion and emotion expressed in his concern for this church or this series of churches. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect by your flesh? You see, this letter is not just unique amongst all that Paul would write, because it is undoubtedly that because of his tone and deep concern, but it's also, it's incredibly powerful. It's unique in its forceful and urgent portrayal or approach, but it's also powerful in its defense and display of the true gospel the gospel of Jesus' grace. You see, the intent of Paul is clearly to define the euangelion, the gospel that Jesus came to declare. He's declaring that the gospel of Jesus is something that he wants to make perfectly clear to us that Jesus offers us a gospel, a good proclamation of grace which leaves us freed from the law, no longer under the crushing weight and pressure of it. You see, Jesus' good news, his gospel, is all about God's grace. His kingdom, Jesus said, is what he came preaching. And the kingdom reality that God is going to redeem and restore all things is an expression of that heart of grace, that he's willing to be committed to creation All the way to the end, at great cost to himself, it's grace that we're seeing. But also his rescuing of humanity is exclusively based on grace. Grace, we we define it as God's unmerited favor. His unmerited favor, I explain it to my kids this way, that mercy is them not getting what they deserve. They break the rule, they, they tell a lie, they steal the chocolate from the jar, Mercy is them not getting the the judgment or punishment, the correction that they deserve. Grace is the step beyond that, though. 
Grace is giving them what they do not deserve. It's giving them blessing rather than, in Scripture, blessing in place of cursing. It's blessing in place of correction or in place of a consequence for my children. That's what grace is. Mercy is me not getting what I deserve. Grace is is the next step further beyond that. It's me getting what I do not deserve. And this letter is all about life within the kingdom, life with God in the here and now. And it's going to tell us that the gospel of grace is what we needed when we first believed and entered into the family of God. But it's also going to tell us that the grace of God is still what we need now as followers of Jesus. My friends, we never graduate from our need, our deep need, to hear the gospel because we will never graduate from our need, our deep need for the gospel of grace. We need his grace constantly. The book of Galatians is all about living in the joy and freedom that the gospel of grace creates for us. A life that's marked with joy and freedom should be our reality because of the gracious character of Jesus and his gracious promises to us. Oh, this letter, it's not just unique, but it's also incredibly powerful. This powerful message of this letter has reverberated through the centuries of church history, shaking men and whole movements like a violent earthquake throughout the ages. In fact, Martin Luther... You might remember the great reformer of the church who would break the church away from a broken union that it had developed between church and state with the Roman Catholic churches. He would stand and be the the great reformer that God would use. So much of what developed in his heart happened as a result of him studying this book, the book of Galatians. In fact, he would refer to this as his bride, that he felt so deeply connected to the message of, of Galatians that he was betrothed to it is how he put it. And then so moved by it, it would become his most most well-known work is his commentary on these letters to, or this letter to the churches of Galatia, second only to the 95 theses that he would pound onto the door as he began the Great Reformation. This is the spark that would ignite in his heart. The the study of this book would ignite a spark in his heart that would be felt by the church around the globe. Quoting from Luther himself, his commentary on Galatians, he says, Various holy order have been launched for the purpose of securing peace of conscience through religious exercises, but they have proved failures because such devices only increase doubt and despair. We find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. If you fast forward 200 years from from the early 1500s with Luther to another group of people, there's a new wave and new movement that God begins. We, We now refer to it as we look back as the Great Awakening, and it has its roots in this letter that Paul wrote to this region of the world. You see, there are two brothers named John and Charles Wesley, along with a group of their friends who got a hold of Luther's ancient commentary on Galatians. And they were committed to gather together to seek God and to study through the message that Paul would write to this church. So they gathered to pray together and to read Paul's letter and then to begin to read Luther's massive commentary. And in that little private gathering where they began to read aloud from just the introduction of Luther's commentary, the Spirit of God moved so powerfully in their lives 
that they went out preaching and planting churches literally around the world because of renewed understanding of grace that had so gripped their hearts where hundreds of thousands of people across the Western Hemisphere, historians will tell us, came to faith in Jesus and had radical conversions because of a renewed understanding of the profoundness of God's grace for broken humanity. In fact, the modern missions movement has its roots in this book because it's modern missions movement that that was founded in that moment from that little group of people who read this simple introduction from Luther. Quoting from it, Luther would ask the rhetorical question, so then have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? And then they read his words, nothing, no nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness, sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin and no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I'm indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. So then have we anything to do to obtain this righteousness? Nothing, no nothing at all. The message to the churches in the region of Galatia is beautiful because it sends our attention back to the only thing that rescues and saves us, and that is the unmerited favor, the grace of God. And my prayer for our church as we walk through this book over the next four months, as we study the letter to the Galatians, my prayer is that we would allow God to to define the great gospel of grace for us. And please, God, my prayer has been that he would grow more than just our understanding, but that he grow our hearts through this letter in love for him, but also in a real love and heart for the world around us. So we'll look just at these first few verses as we begin our walk through the book of Galatians. You know, it's difficult as we look at something like this and consider the subject matter, if it's about a bunch of legalists, who are coming into the church to undermine the message of the good news of Jesus, then maybe we need to start by just asking the question that may already be bouncing around in your own head. And that would be that if this is written to appeal to those who've been swayed from the gospel of grace by adding to it performance, the pressure of performance in light of the law, pressure applied by this group of people historically referred to as the Judaizers, who are trying to make everyone, yes, a follower of Jesus, but also into a law-abiding, circumcised Jew. If that's who it's written to and why it's motivated, and and if most of us don't really have self-proclaimed Judaizers walking up to our door and trying to persuade us to leave the simplicity of the message of the gospel of Jesus, then is there any real relevance for us in this letter? Is there any need for us to even look at this book if it's warning about something? Is it warning about something that even exists in our present reality in the 21st century in San Diego? 
The book here warns of legalism and will point us back to grace again and again and again. And I think that each of us has both an internal voice and external voices around us that constantly push us towards legalism. We don't need the Judaizers to be present. We've got other voices and ourselves who seem to be bent on, like a car that's out of alignment, pulling in the direction away from a deep appreciation of grace and into a pattern of legalism. It's, it's the voice that we don't always know what to do with, the one that tells us you're a failure. And you'll never earn or deserve a place in the kingdom and family of God. You're the exception. Oh, look around. Yes, maybe they've received it. Yes, maybe they get it. But you're the exception because you know who you really are. So you'd better try harder and do your best to prove yourself. It's that voice, that voice that exists in so many of us. You see, legalism is working in your own power to try to earn what's already freely been given to you in Christ. Legalism is working by an added set of rules, rules that God did not set as an expectation for you. Legalism is the work you do to earn God's favor, believing that your performance is how you'll secure that favor. Legalism is the internal shift from a vulnerable position of surrender before God and His grace to actively trying to have power and control over God by demanding that he now owes you because look how hard I've worked and how I've worked so very hard to earn and deserve your favor and blessing now. You see, some of us might have legalistic pressure that's pushing on us from the outside, but most of us have a good little legalist living inside of us already that you and I need to preach the gospel to often again and again and again. It's unfortunate, I wish this wasn't true in my own life, but I can do what maybe some of you can do. I can turn my Christian experience in the same rat race environment that exists in every other area of our lives. And it's soul crushing when you live your life constantly concerned about other people's perception of you and trying your best to earn and deserve the admiration of others. And everything you do becomes for show to make noise and to turn heads and to earn your place and recognition in the eyes of God and of people. And because of that, what you find is that you're unable to slow down or relax even for a moment because there's a crushing weight of pressure on you where you know you still have not done enough. enough. And you're unable to ever rejoice with others because you resent their success. And you're unable to ever be human enough with others just to be real for a moment because you have to keep up an appearance. And you're so afraid if people see the real side of you that's still present and broken. Stop and remember today that every other religion leaves you under a crushing weight of pressure to do everything that you can to get a distant God to notice you, but not the Christian message. It presents a God who loved us so deeply that he was drawn to us. He came to us to suffer and die with and for us. You see, the essence of every other religion is essentially advice, whereas Christianity is news. Advice from other religions of of what's required, what you need to do to, to reach God or to reach enlightenment. But there's news here. The gospel is news, good news about what God has done for you that just needs to be believed and embraced without requirements connected to it. 
See, there's a, a massive difference between news and advice. And I need, for me personally, to intentionally embrace the good news of Jesus and not just attempt to adhere to good advice. You see, sometimes I have to stop myself and intentionally step back to make sure that I'm not making the gospel of Jesus into something that it's not. Because something inside me seems naturally determined to turn the gospel into good advice and to make it requirement rather than news. And I don't know in my life or yours if that's rooted in pride because we want to earn it and feel good about ourselves or if it's rooted in fear, knowing that we really have not done anything to earn or deserve it and so we feel the pressure to scramble and do something. But all that to say that I believe that this letter has relevance in the life of every follower of Jesus, even in our modern setting, and that it can provide life-changing relief from the pressure that you feel and life-giving power as the reality of the gospel of grace settles into my mind and heart, your mind and heart with me. So look, would you, at three things that this introduction introduces us to. What Paul will make clear is what's true about himself what's true about Jesus, and what's true about the Galatians and us as well. So first, what's true about Paul and the gospel that he preaches? Spoiler alert, here's what it is. It's that it exclusively has authority. The first thing, what's true about Paul and the gospel he preached? It has exclusive authority. It's clear from Paul's opening statement that his apostleship was called into question. When he starts by saying, I am not an apostle, by the will of men. Someone had come along at some point in time and began to suggest that Paul didn't really know what he's doing or saying. He's hardly an expert. In fact, he doesn't really have the kind of authority that he needs to come and to teach like he did here in starting these churches, to claim that God was inviting all people into the family, not based on their performance, but solely on Christ. Well, who is this Paul after all? They begin to question. He wasn't one of the original disciples, was he? Who's to say that he isn't speaking this, this on, on his own behalf or even making it up himself separate from the apostles, separate even from Jesus' own message? Maybe he's gotten it all wrong and he's misguided at best. So Paul will defend his apostleship. Now, apostle, it just simply means a sent one. And it's important for us to ask the question, are there still apostles today like we have here at the Apostle Paul? And the answer is yes and no. The capital A apostles were people who were uniquely trained by Jesus and sent by Jesus, and that group has come and gone at the first century itself. So there are no longer capital A apostles who have the kind of authority that you find here with someone like Paul, but there are, however, still remaining lowercase a apostles who, who yes, might f feel confident that their training is coming from the source itself, from Scripture, from Jesus itself, but their sending is not by Jesus. Their sending, their commissioning, is going to be by the seminary they went through. It's by the denomination they're a part of. It's by the church that sent them out. They cannot claim what, what Paul and the 11 disciples around him would claim, that Jesus himself taught them their message and then commissioned them directly. You see, there's a difference between the capital A apostles and then those who are just holding the gift still today of apostleship. There's still people today who are sent out who have gifts of faith and who go out to pioneer a new work, who, who are church planters and missionaries who I think carry this gift, but not the authority that Paul is here claiming to have. 
In fact, I think this is something Paul is arguing for regarding his own calling. A risen Jesus who Paul encountered and heard from is something that we'll discuss next time, but that is who commissioned Paul. That is who taught Paul, and that is who sent Paul with divine authority. The authority had the clarity of his message was because he received it directly from Jesus, which is why he says here, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In fact, it's so important to him that he begins to say in verses 8 and 9, he says, so even if I were to come and give a different gospel, even if we, who are the apostles, come and change our mind and teach something different, even if an angel comes from heaven and teaches you a different gospel, what does he say? Let them be accursed. If anyone preaches another gospel, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Let them never to have existed even. Paul's taking this very, very seriously and willing to place himself under that kind of a curse, saying, well, if I'm doing this or anyone else, or isn't it interesting that he even throws out even an angel who'd come from heaven to start a new gospel proclamation, let them be accursed and do not listen to them. And we've seen it in our own history, haven't we? There's a reminder here for us that we trust the authority of Scripture, of Jesus' gospel directly from Scripture above any other voice that we hear. And I realize that statement can make people squirmish, uh, so stick with me. Above a well-intentioned voice of a parent, we listen to the voice of God in Scripture. Above your pastor's voice, you should look at the voice of Scripture. Above a popular writer or sociologist or news outlet or Christian musician or leader's voice, we should look the direction of the authority of Scripture itself to test those things and to listen for the voice of God. You know, I think the more literal we take this book, the Bible, the more liberal we are meant to become in our love and compassion for the world. Because the more liberally, generously, we will extend and dispense love and compassion to people around us. Because what this book shows me, if I'm taking it literally, is that there's grave consequence to my condition. It's that I'm a sinner in need of rescue, just like the rest of humanity, and it levels the playing field so that I'm no better than anyone else. And it simultaneously shows me that I, like everyone else, am so deeply loved by God, a gracious love that's the unmerited, unearned favor of God being extended towards us, treating his own son as an enemy so that he could welcome me as a son. Oh, if I take that message literal, then I will live in love, liberally dispensing love and grace and compassion on the world around me. What's true about Paul here and the gospel that he preaches, he points out is that it has exclusive authority. And that if other people come teaching things that, that, that are against it, he's saying, let them be accursed. But here's the second thing. What's true then about Jesus and the gospel and here's the spoiler alert. What he says here is true about Jesus and the gospel is that it is exclusively grace that saves us. This is what he points out right from the beginning of this letter and what he will open up throughout the remainder of it. That it is exclusively grace that saves us. In fact, did you notice there's three things that he mentions here that are true about Jesus? The first is that he gave his life for us. That he then delivered us, he rescued us, maybe your Bible might say. And that he, in doing so, he gave us grace and peace with it. Verse 4, 
who gave himself for our sins. Think of that. He gave himself. It does not say that what, what's happened in a transactional relationship in, between me and God is that Jesus received. No, he gave. He did not receive my works. That's not the position that Jesus takes in my relationship with him. He is not the one who receives my works as I tried to earn his favor from him. No, it says here that Jesus come, comes as the giver. He gave, giving even his own life. Listen, if our sins could be removed by our own merit, then what need was there for heaven to send a deliverer and substitution for us? Why would Christ even come to suffer? if heaven was ready to receive from us, but instead heaven came to give. He gave himself for our sins, Paul writes. For in English can either mean because of or on behalf of. In the Greek language, though, there's two different words that are used with two different definitions connected to them. Although it's true that Jesus gave himself because of our sin, that's not Paul's point here. He uses the different Greek word. Paul's linguistic choice here makes it clear that this is the intention that he wants to clearly communicate to us that Jesus gave himself, not just because of, but in on behalf of my sin. That Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to atone for my sin. And if Jesus successfully did that, then my sin has been done away with because it's been paid for in totality by Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus makes the statement that heaven has received that sacrifice and substitute and that it, it pleased God and then it fulfilled all that was needed to be done. And that means then, think about this, that anyone who comes along to tell me what I have to do to atone for my own sin and finally be made fully acceptable to God again and united with him If someone comes saying those things, then they are teaching a false gospel saying that Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient for us. Think about this. This is the order of the gospel. He accepts us, then we follow him. Other religious systems reverse this. We must give God something in order for him then to accept us. But this is where the gospel is so very different. He accepts us, then we respond to him. Again, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. Quoting Luther's famous commentary on Galatians, he said, These words are like thunderclaps of protest from heaven itself against every kind and type of self-merit. Dallas Willard, in his book, uh, the, it's entitled Life Without Lack, he masterfully said it this way. He says that grace is opposed to earning, but is not opposed to effort, because effort is action, earning is attitude. Think about this. Grace is opposed to earning, but is not opposed to effort. Think it through. The whole of the Bible, even Jesus' teachings himself, teach us about morality and justice and and instruct us to live peaceably with people. And then clearly, if that's true, clearly God is not in opposition to our efforts, to us making the choice to put in effort, to, to respond in obedience and to love him and to love our neighbor well. However, a cross stands for all of human history to see that that proves to us that mankind's effort could never earn our place back in God's favor and presence. 
Grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. Paul's not arguing that the law of God should be discarded. He is, however, arguing that you're freed from the burden of it, the crushing weight of the law, and no longer condemned by it. He's not saying it's all irrelevant. He's just saying that you're freed from it. Oh, yes, love your neighbor, do good to others, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Don't lie or steal or murder, but don't look at your keeping of the law as your own form of justification. Don't go to the law for the earning of your salvation. Verse 4 and 5, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us, that he might rescue us, your Bible might say, from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember, my friends, what Paul is saying here, that Jesus has rescued us. He didn't merely come to instruct us. He's our Savior, not merely our example. Isn't it true that that's the, the founders of other religions? That's what they are. If you ran to Muhammad and said, you are my Savior, he would correct you. If you ran to, to Buddha, if you ran to leaders in different movements or, or different religious groups and you said, be my Savior, all of them would say, no, I am here as your instructor. But Jesus would be more than that. He didn't merely come to live as an example. If he did, please hear me, that would crush you. If Jesus is merely as an example for me, that would crush me. No, remember that he came as a substitute and a savior to rescue you. And why did he do it? Well, Paul answers it right here, doesn't he? He said he did it because it was in the heart of God to do. His motivation wasn't your good behavior, your great track record, or even all the potential he saw inside of you. It was that this was what his heart willed. Because he says, the end of verse 4, he did these things according to the will of our God and Father. And because he did this, regardless of our actions, without requirement that we earn it, because he did this as an expression purely of grace, of unmerited favor upon us, then it's true, the very next verse, to God then be the glory forever and ever. Amen. None of us can ever glory or boast in anything that we've done to earn the favor of God because he did it because it was in his heart to do. He did it regardless of what we could ever offer him. He didn't do it contingent upon anything. He did it because it was in his heart. This was his desire. What's true about Paul and the gospel that he preached is that it has exclusive authority. And what's true about Jesus and the gospel is that it exclusively is grace that saves us. But what's true about the Galatians here? What does he tell us about them? Well, it's clear as you read the letter that Paul is angry with these false teachers who have come in, but then he's urgent with the Galatians. He doesn't address the, the churches in the region of Galatia, though, as evildoers. He, he addresses them as people who have suffered a grave loss and maybe even been robbed. And again, if you look at verse 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He says to them, I marvel that you're turning away so soon. And most Bible commentators and scholars, they, they believe that, 
that these churches are just a couple of years old. That Paul had gone through the region of Galatia, planted these churches, and then left. So that means these are relatively new converts. These are baby Christians. And yet Paul is still shocked that they were so easily misled by false teachers. You know, it's been wisely said that the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand and receive, and yet it's profound enough that even the wisest of men still marvel at it. You know, there's a responsibility for myself and our elder team to try to protect our flock from false doctrine. But do you notice who Paul is saying he's shocked to? It's not to the leaders of the church. He's saying it to the congregants who are baby Christians who have only walked with Jesus a couple of years. He's saying to them, I am shocked. He's communicating to them an expectation, really, of you as a follower of Jesus to know the gospel of Jesus well enough that you could recognize the error in a false gospel that would try to come and gain access to your mind and heart. He's saying, how are you so shocked and fooled? Maybe you wonder like I do, well, why were they swayed so quickly? Well, we don't really know for sure, but I'd I'd venture to say, I'd probably guess, that it's probably because they didn't show up and just say, hey, Paul's an idiot, throw it all out. They probably said, well, what he said was good, but then they start questioning his authority. We don't know that he really got the full thing, though. And In fact, we think he's a little misguided because he wasn't originally there, right? And so what we actually think is what he says is right. Yes, it's true that Jesus' love and grace is what will save you, but if you really want the favor of God, then you also need to do these other things. It was very, very subtle. It's things maybe that you've heard, like if you really want the favor and the grace of God on your life, what you really need to also do now to experience the fullness of life with God is you need to speak in tongues. And until you do, you're a second-class citizen. Or you, you need to attend church on a specific day or be a part of a specific, a specific denomination or, or a, a church that has a very specific worship style. You need to boycott Disney. Maybe you've heard that one. Or, or, or the expectation is if you really want to follow Jesus, then you need to vote Republican or maybe it's vote Democrat, or not vote at all, or that you dress a certain way, or join a commune, or burn your secular music. I guess that's dating me, because that was back when we had cassettes and CDs that were available. Or go to door, door-to-door witnessing to people if you really want the full blessing and favor of God. Or you need to give more, pray more, read more, and do more. Remember, please, grace isn't in opposition to effort. It stands, however, forever in opposition to earning. And that's what people are trying to get us to do. I've heard people say it over the years, and it typically sounds something like this. You're saved, but if you really want to experience the full experience of walking with God and the blessing of God on your life, then you really got to give 110% to this, which means that no more drums in church, no more songs but hymns, no more pants without pleats. Or let's be serious, here's some of the ones that I actually have been told over the years. Then no more hobbies, then no more cable TV, then no more relationships, real friendships with people who are outside the family of God. No more rated R movies, except with the exception of the Passion of the Christ. Absolutely no alcohol, even if you're cooking with it. And by all means, no Harry Potter book ever shall pass through the threshold of your door and enter your home. And if you've ever been divorced or got a tattoo or seen Titanic or read The Shack or kissed someone that you didn't marry, then you might not even make the cut into the full experience of what it's like to really be experiencing receiving the favor of God in your life. In fact, a daily quiet time is is required, and that means you need to journal because that's what we think you should do. And and you need to sit and speak in tongues during that time, and, and you need to sit and read scripture every evening with your spouse and have worship music be the only genre that you're streaming. At some point, do you see that we've stepped into another gospel? 
And it can happen subtly, can't it? Because to distort the beauty and simplicity of the gospel with the law is to reject Jesus' gospel and depart from it. This is why Paul says in verse 6, this is another gospel. He's not saying this is a slightly different view of the same one. He's saying we've departed and left the ship. We've, we've charted a whole new course. This isn't just a course correction we need. I'm calling you back to repentance so that you see the only thing that will ever rescue you is not your effort. It will never be that. It will solely be Jesus' grace. To agree with people who come along and say that in addition to your faith in Jesus' finished work, quote-unquote, at the cross and God raising him from the dead, that you also need to keep the law if you want to truly be the beloved of God is overestimating all of our goodness, it's underestimating our sinful brokenness, and it's a gross misunderstanding of the purpose of the law in the first place, which is something that in a later chapter Paul opens up beautifully what the purpose of the law is. You see, these legalists have perverted the gospel of Christ is what he says. It's interesting that word perverted can also be translated they've reversed it. By muddling the law with the gospel, it's left no room for grace and no room for Jesus, for his perfect life and sacrifice. And isn't that exactly what Paul wrote to them? Verse 6, you've departed from him. Do you feel the sting of those words? They didn't just leave a system, they left Jesus. Really, they, they left Jesus a person to embrace a cold, harsh system and the law. In Matthew 28, Jesus did commission his disciples, go and make more disciples, baptizing them, that's bringing them into the family of God, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. To obey Jesus is submission to a person. To put yourself in subjection back under the law, though, is to, to yield to a crushing system. Their issue in mind was not only being caused by failing to live in obedience to God, their great error was caused by their reliance upon their obedience to God to find them securely seated there with Him. What's true about the Galatians and about me is that we need to be brought back to the beauty of simple grace again and again and again. And that is what we will do as we go through this book together. Why don't you close your Bible? So I'm going to let you in on a family secret. If you'll do me a favor, don't make me regret this later. The other night, Keegan uh, had a really rough night. And we've had a, a rough stretch in moments with him. He's, he's very fiery. In fact, his name, Keegan, literally means fiery. If we had known that before... But he has a very sweet side to him as well. And the other night, he had gotten into trouble and, and was lashing out and, and acting ridiculous and got sent to his room, and it was bedtime, so he's going to go to bed. And I had gone back into our bedroom, and a few minutes later, an airplane, a paper airplane, came flying through the air <laughs> across the hall from his room into ours. And what it had inside uh, was a very interesting drawing that depicted what had gone down that evening, and then the note on top that said, sorry for yelling and screaming at you. And then at the bottom, he taped his $5 bill. Now, Keegan, you should know, it, it, 
saving money is like something we didn't think it was humanly possible for him until we told him, we'll go to Disneyland as a family if you can save enough money to pay for your own ticket because he'd never saved a dime in his life. And then he not only saved, but he hustled people. <laughs> so we're going to find a way to go to Disneyland this spring, but this is the first money Keegan's had in his possession since saving for over a year. The money represents a lot to him, I know that. And the money is what he had just earned by helping his mom around the house with a bunch of chores. But for Keegan to say, I'm sorry, and then send the money my direction, was for him to say, take it back, and him really trying to purchase favor again, isn't it? There's something that exists in our heart, or his heart, that I can recognize because it exists in mine too. That even as a kid, the the insecurity that can be present, the, the fact that I know that I blew it and now I'm depending on grace and forgiveness and mercy for me to be accepted, I'd rather shortcut that. Here's my life savings. I'll give everything that I can. Here's my $5 flying through the air in the form of a little paper airplane. You know, we look for opportunities like this to sit with our kids and to tell them, you don't need to earn our love. You don't need to buy back favor with us or your place in our family. It's good for us in those moments to sit with our kids and tell them we forgive you because we love you and, and, and we love you because you're our son. Not because you've worked hard to earn or deserve our love for you. And in fact, this is what I love to tell my kids. Keegan, I will never love you any more or less because my love for you is not based on your performance or you throwing me money to try to buy it back. My love for you is based on your identity. You're my son. And I love you that way because this is how Jesus has loved me. And I know what this feeling is like because this is how I respond to him at times. But Keegan, this is where you need to hear your dad's voice say that the money is yours and we don't need it because the love that we have for you is unwavering. Because that's what the gospel tells me. That we can be pulled in a direction to try to add legalism to a message of grace because we're looking for something to hold on to that we feel makes us secure. But again and again, Jesus says, it's okay, you can keep your little $5, it'll be all right. Again and again, I think he says, no, 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 you, you're trying hard, it's okay. The effort's all right, but are you trying to earn? Because if you're trying to earn, you need to know it's foolish because you cannot earn what I've already freely given to you. The grace of Jesus, my friends, is what we need again and again and again. And so Jesus, as we step into this book, we thank you for the great grace that you give to us. And Jesus, I'm praying that the, the truth and power of your grace would settle into our hearts and that would, it would unsettle us. Move us to action to respond in love for you and love for those around us. This is otherworldly. This is unheard of. This is foreign in our world. God, no one treats us this way. Everyone keeps score. You keep promises. So Jesus, we thank you for your great grace that you extend to us. And we look back the direction of you and that grace. We look the direction of of the true gospel of grace and away from the broken thing that our heart seems to try to create again and again and again. Jesus, thank you for fresh starts. Thank you for how you affirm us and love on us through the scriptures. 
And thank you for how you've done that again today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.